I'm Chalice Media Group publisher Brad Lyons. Chalice is proud to support inspiring authors like Shonda Jha, who encourage us to discover new ways each of us can change our world every day. Check out our library of social justice and anti-racism titles at chalicemedia.org. Welcome to Their Wildest Dreams, a podcast about ancestors and activism. My name is Shonda Ja. I am your host. I am also the author of Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us, and The Ancestors We Need to Free. I am so excited that in this episode we get to hear from one of my favorite civil rights and disability rights activists, organizers, and legislative uh, whizzes, Rebecca Coakley. Brilliant, brilliant human being, deeply uh, committed to her values and living them out in every aspect of her life, and somebody who really understands the power of ancestors in that work and of visibilizing the ancestors who have often been hidden from us. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. Um, The first question is a really basic one. It's who are you in the world and what is the activism that is kind of stirring your heart these days? Um, So my name is Rebecca Coakley. I am um, a four foot two Irish little person, um, second generation little person in my family raising a third. Um, And, you know, the activism or or sort of the cause of my heart at the particular moment is sort of the question about how do we better connect all of our movements. And I think that for me, like the thing that I often think of, like, I joke that, you know, I'm not a big true crime person, but like my brain works as you would like picture either like a cop or a serial killer's map in their head where yes. it's like the yarn and the string and the pictures. And I'm always trying to think about how do we, you know, our, how do we um, build more like sinew? How do we build more tangible connection across all of our spaces Yeah. Um, to better connect all of our movements? Because there's been a you know, the, the separation of movements is intentional. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's a way to divide us all in our power, like as groups and also as individuals. And so what would it look like? Like, how do we create more cross-movement solidarity? Um, and, and more cross-movement, I mean, yes, solidarity, but also just like appreciation mm-hmm. and, and love and in, yeah. in such a way that we do really truly all show up for each other. I feel like it's such an exciting time in the movement, actually, because you're casting that vision in such powerful and profound ways. And I feel like there are other people doing other kind of parallel things. Like, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movement map that Deepa Iyer created, where it's kind of like, Mm -hmm. so it's a sense of like, that's different work, but it's kind of all of us have different gifts that we're bringing in. And often those yeah. gifts are uh, not necessarily seen or acknowledged. But when we pay attention to kind of the ecosystem of the movement, 
we can appreciate each other's gifts and get our gifts appreciated. Um, and I feel like that is enriching. I have some colleagues who are uh, out here working on how do we build our version of Alec? So a lot of my kind of secular left yeah. organizer friends oh, are kind totally. of figuring out how we do that. Um, I'm fingers crossed going back for my PhD so that I can get ready for us to build out um, our version of the Heritage Foundation, a religious left think tank Ooh. that's casting the 50 year vision. So like, I feel Ooh. like all of us are kind of seeing our potential collective power and we've got enough of the movement experience now we can actually activate it in some really beautiful ways. So I'm thrilled at the ways that you're living that out. Cause it's so important. I think it's central to all of these other things. And I feel like we're all, um, you know, they always talk about like approaching things like, you know, touching, touching the elephant and what part of the elephant yes. are you touching? And I think we've all touched the elephant enough. The elephant is like, stop touching me. <laughs> and we can all sort of like take a step back to be like, okay, so what is the, like, what does the elephant need? Like yeah. we, we, we've all, we all know what our piece of it is. Yeah. But um, I mean, one of the things that Congressman Lewis and I, I talked about it. So, you know, on point for this conversation around ancestors mm -hmm. um, and ancestry is, you know, people join movement work because of trauma. Yes. And movement work itself can also be very traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And so what is the, how do we, how do we buttress yeah. movement spaces? Like what is the movement infrastructure? Yeah. Um, what is the movement wellness checks? Like what, yeah. what, what smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors do we need in our movement spaces yes. um, to keep us mindful of both the internal or both the external forces, but also mm -hmm. what's happening inter internally within the health of our movements. Right. And in fact, that was one of the things I, I, I mentioned to you that I quoted you, uh, your interview with, um, I just blinked on her name. Um, was it Melissa uh, Harris Perry? Thank you. I quoted your interview with Melissa Harris Perry in the book, where you were talking about like, here are some of the great leaders here's some of the harm they did. Um, and, and you said that Congressman Lewis is like, right, it's your job. It's this generation's job to heal some of that. I feel like that's so germane to this subject of ancestors, because I think when I entered this project, I was thinking in terms of who are the inspiring, encouraging, radical, resisting ancestors who can empower us. And interestingly enough, it was the conversations I was having with a lot of people with relative privilege who were like, yeah, I got some messed up ancestors. And it turns out we yeah. all do, right? Um, and yeah. so that is also, it turns out, valuable. We don't need to be ashamed of it. We get to learn from it. I feel like you've done a lot of really good work of talking about our ancestors are complicated, our history's complicated. Some of the stories that are actually important to us are complicated. I remember the, I feel like I have seen you a few times um, talk about, you know, the lollipop guild, right? Um, and yeah. how that's actually an important part of history. And as much as we can look back on and be like, that was messed up. And also it yielded some really important stuff, right? Yeah. You know, I think, um, I, I think, you know, being a little person and, and being, you know, in the disability community, we talk about ancestors, you know, obviously from like the biological sense, but also from like the movement sense, yes. so, you know, our movement ancestors. And so, you know, um, I hear a lot of people complain about the Wizard of Oz and the Wizard of Oz, mm -hmm. as you know, as I, I talk about is, 
it to me is has its very problematic moments. And then at the same time, understanding that my culture wouldn't exist without the Wizard of Oz. And, you know, the Wizard of Oz being the first pulling together of people with dwarfism anywhere in the world yep. and bringing so many together they, that they actually actually fundamentally changed the L.A. County census because so many of them moved, fell in love because it was yes. the first time any of them had ever been in the majority yeah. in a space in their lives. Yeah. And, you know, got married, like got married, fell in love, shacked up, had babies, lived on the, lived at the beach. Yeah. And like shifted the demographics of LA County because there was just such a, a you know, emergence of, you know, quote unquote munchkins uh, at that point in yep. time. Right. You know, and then at the same time saying, well, because of that, you know, people still feel like that they can go up and pick you up on the street or they can take your photograph on the street or, you mm -hmm. know, we have a preponderance of, of bullshit reality shows of little people yeah. perpetuating every harmful stereotype of every community. Mm -hmm. Um because we're seen as entertainment going back to the Wizard right. of Oz, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, on the family side, I mean, my, my grandfather was a federal judge who threw Congressman Lewis in jail repeatedly, <laughs> um, you know, who was responsible for the injunction in Selma, Alabama, that said three or more African-Americans congregating constitutes a mob and right. prohibited the uh, prohibited the ability to talk about voting in black churches in Selma. And yeah. so... You know, and just as my parents didn't hide from conversations around the the harmful and complicated nature of, of Oz, you know, my parents were very open and talking about our family ancestry and being like, this is, you know, we we have the life we have because your grandfather was a federal judge and did absolutely mm -hmm. horrifically terrible things. And, you know, our family responsibility is to unpack the harm we've done. Mm -hmm. and to go about the world in such a way that we have the responsibility to heal. Like we have the responsibility to fix things. And I know it's a hackneyed phrase, you know, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, but there's something about knowing that history and being able to talk about it that is transformative. I know uh, I, I used to do a lot of work uh, with formerly incarcerated um, people who were affiliated with gangs, right? And yeah. in the, especially in the aughts, right, the early 2000s, um, there were so many gang injunctions that were more than two people of the same culture uh, constituted yeah. a gang gathering, and you could be locked up for that. And there were people in our communities who knew enough history to be like, hey, you know when else we've done that? And so, you know, in Oakland, where where I live, the people who were passing those laws were brown and black folks who were trying to yeah. keep their communities safe. And it was really important for them to get to hear from other people, hey, you know how this tends to get used? You know what it doesn't accomplish? And do you know what it does accomplish? Uh, it, it accomplishes the incarceration of black and brown men in particular, right? So Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up on the other side of the pencil. I grew up in Burlingame. Right. Um, and, and I'm a Santa Cruz grad. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember, I remember watching those laws get passed. I remember, yeah. I remember hearing, watching the nightly 10 o'clock news on KNTV mm -hmm. or KTVU and KTVU. watching the conversations around the city council meetings. Yep. Um, about, about bills like that. And, 
Yeah, I mean, I remember going to the mall with my friends and yep. my black and brown friends getting profiled at yep. Hillsdale at Stone. You know, we'd hop the okay. hop the the El Camino bus and get off yep. at Stonestown and get profiled at Stonestown. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah. And so, knowing those stories, knowing that history, being able to talk about it can affect change in the present. So, I think that's really important. I wanted to ask. Um, how you got interested in ancestors. And, and it sounds like that was part of your family growing up was talking about the past, both biological and cultural and movement ancestors. But um, when did that start becoming really important to you? How did that emerge? How does it show up for you now? You know, I think um, a couple of different ways. I mean, I grew up, my mom was one of nine kids. I have 40 something first cousins. Wow. Um and when I was growing up, you know, all my family lived in, in Northern California, with the exception of a couple of folks that lived in, in one person lived in Georgia and another lived in Colorado at one point in time. Um, so we always grew up with a lot of family around. And, and my grandparents were very much the, like most, my, like my grandparents were the hub of our, were the heart of our family. Um, and, you know, I think, um, for me, it started really young because I had a cousin who was abducted. Um, mm. my, my first childhood memory, my cousin was abducted in 1982. We were three years old mm -hmm. um, and he was abducted. It was a parental abduction and mm -hmm. um, they didn't do anything about it because parental abductions were not considered a big deal. It was considered right. a, a family court thing. And it, devastated my grandparents they they had custody they had temporary custody of some of my cousins while their mother was was serving a, a bit in women's prison mm -hmm. and um i remember yeah i remember everything about that day i remember you know what happened how it happened i remember watching my grandmother throw herself on the ground in tears yeah um and 18 years went without us knowing if ezra was if my cousin ezra was alive or dead he was my first friend. I mean, he was two months younger than me. Every day was spent him and I running around our grandparents' house. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the really early days of his abduction, the first couple of years, you know, um, I sort of like we didn't I didn't know if he was an ancestor or not, but I said prayers to him every night mm -hmm. because I didn't know if he was alive or dead. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I would tell him about my day. Yeah. I would, you know, talk to him about grandma and grandpa and about how much they missed him. I would talk to him about what his brothers and sisters were doing. Um, and, you know, it was it was something that was very much part of my faith. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I grew up in a in an Irish Catholic family. So, you know, church was a big thing. Um, and, you know, and I hated going to church, but I would use that time <laughs> in church, that quiet time yeah. to talk to Ezra. Yep. Um, you know, and then I lost my dad when I was 10, mm -hmm. uh, he passed away. Um, and, you know, I think also for, for my parents, like in, in, you know, my parents' professional life, my dad ran a center for independent living. Mm -hmm. My mom ran a disability student services office on a college campus and mm -hmm. growing up in, in the Bay area in the late seventies, early eighties, we watched HIV hit. Yep. And so my parents lost, we lost so many friends. Yep. Um, 
And my parents were very much of the type where it was like, yeah, they might be gone, but they're always with you. You know, and yeah. I also grew up with the Star Wars generation. And so like watching Luke talk to Obi-Wan and, yes. and, and stuff like that, I think in many ways, you know, all the, all the, you know, as Joseph Campbell has written, all the infiltration of, of the Star Wars mythos. Yes. You know, into, into mid, into like Gen X kids. Like yep. for me, it was normal to like, talk to my ancestors yeah. to talk to, to friends and family that weren't there anymore. And um, yeah, you know, and it's something I, I still very much continue to this day, whether it be through prayer or writing or, you know, I, I talk in the car when it's just me because yep. like my house is noisy. I have three kids and a husband yes. and a dog and a cat. And so <laughs> like, like I will shoot the shit with my mom in the car and my mom's yeah. been gone since 2005 now yeah. at this point. Um, you know, I think also as an only child, um, where everyone else in my family had so many siblings, right? Like, you spend the time talking to yourself. Yep. To fill up the to fill up the quiet sometimes. Yep. No, that makes complete sense. I had not thought about, and I really appreciate it because I know we have a little bit of a shared um, love of kind of sci-fi speculative fiction. I had not made the connection about the ways in which, you know. I think the sci-fi of our childhoods, but also the speculative fiction that's emerging today, like a lot of oh, really yeah. powerful speculative fiction emerging out of marginalized communities, black and uh, uh, African-American, but also African and all sorts of amazing stuff that's coming. Uh, there's a lot of great queer stuff. I hadn't thought about the fact that while we assume that that's about the future, um, it's also connecting us to the past because really, you know, uh, Speculative fiction is generally about what's going on right now um, and approaching yeah. it from a different place, but had not thought about the connection to ancestors. Huh. Thanks. Let me ask, as you have kind of delved into knowing, learning more, connecting with ancestors, have there been any challenges, any things that have been hard about it, any barriers you've encountered? You know, I think... Um... As I, as I've gotten older and, you know, in, in the work that I'm doing now, sort of in philanthropic spaces and, and moving dollars and movement spaces, I mean, it was interesting. Um, I went back to Selma to the, for the mm. first time in 30 years, yeah. um, this last fall. And the last, I, my, my running joke was that the last time I was in Selma, I had to be court ordered to be there. Um, <laughs> And um, because my after my dad died, my grandmother tried to sue my mom for custody. And the agreement oh. they came with was that I would go to Selma um, and for for a period of time during the summer break. And yeah. I hated every minute of it. Yeah. Um, and so there our our organization decided that we were going to take our board of trustees to Selma and do like the Selma to Montgomery trip. Yes. Um, you know, which seems to be. I have mixed feelings about it. I'm I'm very glad I went. And at the same time, sort of like stepping back, I watch a lot of organizations do this. And I think mm -hmm. especially in light of the the current tornado that they're dealing with the aftermath of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know dozens of organizations that have done the like Selma to Montgomery trip, the, the march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And I'm like, what are your organizations doing now to support those people whose labor you extracted right. in, your, in your time there to gain some awakening? Um and there isn't anything there in terms of industry. There isn't anything in terms of, of economic mobility. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it was interesting for me to like 
I, I really wanted to go back because knowing the dynamics of the types of folks that were going on this trip, for me, it was important. Um, I wanted to make sure that white people were held accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and, you know, and at the same time, it was, it was really interesting because we ended up having a tour guide on our trip um, who had been sent to jail like four times by my grandfather. Wow. And we ended up in a really deep conversation even before the sort of the tour started. Cause I was like, Oh, I have, I have family down here. And she's like, Coakley. She's like, that's like, that's further North. She's like, that's like the Carolinas. And I was like, Oh, that's my, my married name. My last name is, is, is hair, which is really notorious in Selma. And she looked at me and she goes, judge hair. And I was like, yeah, that was my grandfather. Um, and we had like a multitude of some really deep conversations about it. And she was like, so what do you do? And I was like, I fund social justice movements. Um, I fund civil rights work and, and, you know, I, I like, she was like, when was the last time you were here? I was like 30 years ago. I was 12. I hated it. Um, but like, I mean, we went to my grandfather's courthouse. We went to the church who we filed the injunction against and, um, it was a lot spending time with those ghosts. Yep. Like it was a lot feeling the um the energy in the space. Um and recognizing it as both familial mm-hmm. and like you almost you know, and, and certain parts of Selma haven't changed much geographically or structurally in fifty, sixty, seventy yeah. years. And so you go down these streets and like, I expect to see my dad, like, and his siblings, like walking down those streets. And so there was a lot, you know, I made a point of, of taking some significant time for myself on the trip, you know, and then I ended up, I ended up meeting up with, uh, um, with my cousin, who's like the black sheep of that side of the family and um, who I've always stayed close with, uh, even after my parents' divorce. Um, And my dad passed away and he brought me like, he brought me like a, six foot long probably four because it's about as tall as i'm four foot tall family tree on like butcher block paper um and a couple of other books that had family history and he was like you know he's always been the one that's like we have to confront this um and we have to unpack it and like that's our that's our moral responsibility yeah um you know and so finding the time to do that and you know at the same time understanding that it's like here I am working for the for the president of the Ford Foundation um you know and Ford was a eugenicist and yep. so Ford would not want me in this space yep. at all as as you know a red-headed little person in a mixed race marriage yep. um and at the same time as the you know granddaughter of a federal judge a segregationist racist as hell federal judge like reconciling all of those pieces like recon- like finding the clarity in all the noise yes it's interesting because i think one of the in the process of my research one of the stories that i hate the warm and fuzzy inspiration stories and yet this one just totally got me i don't know if you know anything about the descendants of uh roger taney and dred scott uh taney I've was, heard. so yeah taney was the supreme court justice who um basically told dred scott it doesn't matter if you were in a free state, um, you are property, right? 
And in fact, if you ever visit the courthouse in St. Louis, there is a statue of Dred Scott and his wife facing away from the courthouse. It's a really profound statement. Oh, wow. It's really powerful. Yeah. Um, And the descendants, the descendants of Roger Taney, uh, one of the descendants of Roger Taney wrote a play because it was her way of kind of saying, here's the damage that our ancestor did. Here's what we need to be accountable for. Uh, Invited the... uh, some of the descendants of Dred Scott and they began to build a relationship. And now they actually do a lot of work around racial justice and reconciliation, but reconciliation that is driven by accountability and making right the things that have happened uh, wrong in the past. And it's just really beautiful to witness the ways in which they've made the choices to show up for each other. And it's funny because um, Taney's, descendants are kind of like we've got so much work to do and dred scott's descendants are like you know it's not their fault they didn't do it and it's fascinating to watch the ways in which they are honoring each other in their own ways it's really pretty beautiful oh that's awesome yeah no i mean like i think about you know very early conversations i had with congressman lewis um i remember actually i was at his office to talk to him about guns and why linking the social security database to gun ownership database is not a good idea. And I don't even remember how we got into the conversation, but um, I think we just ended up talking about Alabama at one point. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I know you, I was like, my, my dad's family's from there. Um, and he was like, Oh, who, who are your dad's people? And so like we, we ended up in this like really deep conversation yeah. about it. And he was like, did you always know? He's like, he's like, I've known you in civil rights spaces for years. Right. And I was like, well, I don't want to walk around and be like, hi, Judge Hare's granddaughter, please. <laughs> like, let me sit at your banquet table. Right. Um, you know, I promise I'm not an asshole. Right. Um, you know, and um, we ended up like we had a really like we had a really long laugh. We had a long we ended up having a much deeper conversation about yeah. it. Um, you know, and he was like, did your parents talk about it? And he goes, because in my dad's family, his older brother had schizophrenia and he went into an institution when he was probably 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the next son is my dad, who's a little person. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Southern hierarchies, your first son is considered at that t- time mentally defective and your yeah. second son is physically defective. Yeah. Um, you know, and he's like, did you, and I was like, yeah, we all, I was like, my parents, you know, they never hit it. Like, it wasn't like, oh, the great family secret, like right. your grandfather's a terrible person. It was like, no, you know, we show up at funerals for AIDS activists mm-hmm. because some, we, nobody deserves to die alone. Right. And we need to recognize our, each other's collective humanity and the humanity of our movements. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, yeah, I mean, we had, we had some, some really interesting, some really tough conversations about it and about the work and what it means in terms of, you know, I mean, he, he says that, you know, he gained his disability because of violence exhibited at the hands of my family. Yeah. Like he had, you know, traumatic brain injuries as a result of being beaten in the head by cops. Yep. Um, you know, and he's like, I identify with the disability. He's like, it's an interesting loop. He's like, I identify with the disability community because I have a disability yeah. because of violence perpetrated against me because of racism. Yep. Um, you know, and I think, yeah, I mean, as we unpack sort of the, the conversations around trauma, 
you know, it is, I mean, it's like your leadership DNA. It's like, where does the, like, as you were saying, like, where does this stuff come from? Where does the good stuff, like the good right. inspirational, the, the positive moving forward stuff come from? And then where is the more difficult, um, like more complicated yeah. uh, conversations come in? Which sometimes reside in the same bodies, right? Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking uh, with somebody earlier today about how, you know, my ancestors have that narrative of colonialism, of colonization, uh, Indian on one side, Scottish on the other. Uh, and, yeah. and so we've got that narrative. And at the same time, um, I'm from the Brahmin caste, which means there were yeah. all sorts of privileges that came along with that. So even during the famines, even during, you know, the, the worst parts of um, Indian history, my family had a little bit of a cushion that no one else in the village had. Right. Um, yeah. My family was one of the few families to get to leave the village. And I think that had a lot to do with caste. And on my mother's side, I remember we, we visited the Andaman islands, which is kind of like the Robin Island of India. It's where the, uh, the freedom fighters were all sent uh, by the yeah. British and my mother and father and I toured it and we were just so moved by it. And my father and I were talking about all the Bengali names on the walls. Um, and I said to my mother, isn't this amazing? And she's like, I'm just embarrassed. And I was like, I don't understand. This was the English. And she's like, who do you think the English sent here as the jailers? Like we didn't have enough yeah. money to stay home. So we were the front lines. And it's interesting because she said the same thing about enslavement. She's like, yeah, yeah, we didn't have the plantations. But who do you think were the overseers? Um, and so it's that it, relative it, marginalization combined with relative privilege that create yeah. who ends up on the front lines. So, yeah, absolutely. So I absolutely. wonder, I wonder if um, if you have any thoughts on ways in which your connections with oh actually what i wanted to ask was you've already shared a little bit about this but are there ways in which you feel connected to ancestors are there rituals is it more you can generally feel them is it um through conversation you've evoked a number of ancestors already including some that uh we weren't ready for them to shift from elder to ancestor just yet but um how do you how do you connect with them you know, it depends. I mean, um, music mm. is a big thing. Uh, music was always, my house was always filled with music. Um, you know, everything from like my grandfather's like old school reel to reel. Um, and it's funny, just even like saying reel to reel, like yes. I, I can smell yeah. what it smelled like. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, whether it be like old, like old, old country, like old Patsy Cline, old Hank Williams, the first, um, you know, like old Irish music, mm. a lot of old Irish music, um, in, in my mom's family, um, to, you know, Mary Chapin Carpenter to, you know, just across, um, to three dog night to, you know, just like to gospel music. I mean, uh, across, like, I'm one of the, like, the amount of, of space in my brain that is filled up by song lyrics is is ridiculous. If I could actually, I mean, I probably would have gone to law school and like been passed in flying colors if that part of my brain could have been filled up with logic models <laughs> instead of song lyrics. 
Um, Song lyrics are more you know, enduring. So, yeah, I mean, music is music is a real powerful thing for me, and so you know, I, I use it often to draw on the ancestors. I'm a Sagittarius, so like candles and and fire. Nice. Um, is a is a big. I'm a, yeah, I'm a double Sag. Um, right. So the more the better. Um, you know, I find like I think the reason I love my house is we have a fireplace. Like mm. it is, I am like I sit right by the fireplace. Yeah. Um. You know, yeah, I mean, smells like mm-hmm. I have a bracelet that was my grandmother's and it smells like Shalimar perfume still. And she's been yeah. gone for probably 40 years at this point and you yeah. can bring it out and it's like, I can smell it. Yes. You know, and I think, yeah, like the, the real, the, the role of the senses yeah. in being able to reach out, you know, and at the same time, I mean, I think in particular, when it comes to my parents, I sort of always feel them. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, um, you know, I was supposed to be one of four and three of my siblings passed away um, as a result of like double dominant dwarfism, which means they were essentially non-viable pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, and it was funny because I always felt like I was missing something when I was a kid and my mom never, like my parents talked about everything. They did not talk about that. I didn't mm-hmm. find out until um, I was probably 19 or 20 mm-hmm. that I had siblings that had predeceased me yeah um and you know I think about them I I can't access them but I think about them a lot and I think in many ways it's why I have three kids yeah um because I hated being an only child and so I never wanted any of my kids to sort of experience that yeah um you know but especially I think particularly and it's funny because I I was had I had more time with my mom And, um, we were extremely close and, um, but I find myself pulling on my dad now that I have sons and in particular, like dwarf boys, um, my oldest in particular, and, you know, trying to make, trying to encourage myself to be patient, trying to encourage myself to support him. Cause I don't know what he's thinking. I mean, 12 year old boys are a lot anyway. Um, yes. but you know, there've been many times where I'm just like, dad, I need you to be with him today. Cause like, I, I don't know what he's carrying. Yeah. I don't know the burdens on his heart. Yeah. Um, you know, and 12 is hard for all kids, but especially kids with disabilities and, you know, like sending my parents out as, as beacons in many ways mm. or as, as protective armor as yeah. my kids face the world. That's beautiful. And this wasn't one of the questions I gave you a heads up I would be asking, but I find myself thinking, and maybe this is as a mixed race kid, um, what are the ways that you're um, making sure that the kids are connected to ancestors from both of your lineages? Is oh, there absolutely. anything you've done intentionally um, around that? I mean, we have a family wall of photos mm. of both of our sides of our families going up and down the wall, including grandparents, great grandparents, uh, great great grandparents, cousins, siblings, everything. Um, we uh, we use it as a bit of an ofrenda during the holidays mm. too. Yeah. Um, you know, and we um, because we have because our kids are everywhere. We tend to use like the battery operated tea lights. Yes. Um, so, so the house isn't catching so it on doesn't fire. Burn down. Um, so it doesn't burn down. Um, you know, and we talk about the ancestors as we put the tea light, as we turn the lights on. Um, you know, we, my, um, my lovely Irish family is super dysfunctional and messy. 
And so we spend holidays with my husband's family in South Carolina. And so they get plenty of time with their uncle, with their grandma, Mm -hmm. with their cousins down there. And we do like a big family gathering down there and making sure that, you know, and we talk about, we talk about their grandparents that are, that are here. We talk about their grandparents that are not here. Yeah. Do a lot of story, a lot of storytelling um, because we want it to be, we want it to be real to them. We want them to feel their presence. Um, You know, and I think for us also, yeah, I mean, it's always been, you know, making sure that we expose them to, their relatives on the Coakley side to their mm-hmm. relatives on the hair and the Cecil side, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then also in terms of even like movement relatives, I mean, my kids, yeah. you know, my kids have grown up around all kinds of folks in movement spaces. I remember one time um, when my oldest was probably three, we were still living in Washington, DC and we were um, walking home or walking through the parking lot from a restaurant we had been at and this older gentleman behind us is like, hello, young man, how are you tonight? And Jackson says something like, I'm fine. How are you? And they start, you know, they sort of like start small talking and we turn around and it's Julian Bond. Oh, my God. And I think and, and my husband and I were just like, like both sort of like dumbfounded. And we're like, Dr. Bond, it is so nice to meet you. And he was like, he's like, well, aren't you just the most lovely family? It is so nice to meet you. And he's like, I love he's like, your son is dressed. So he's like, I love his pea coat. It's so Aww. snazzy. And, and Julian like, Bond has good talks- fashion sense. Yes. Oh, <laughs> like stunning fashion sense. Yes. And like we walked to the car and he was parked like two cars down from us. And he like was still talking to Jackson as we buckled him in oh the seatbelt and like in the car seat and was just talking and was like, it was so lovely to meet you all. He's like, you remind me of my family when my family was younger oh, and would go out and have dinner. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and we've told Jack, I was like, Jackson, you know, we're going to tell you the story for forever. Mm-hmm. Like this is, you know, this is like, it was true. And so like when we see him, uh, when we see Julian Bond on, on documentaries, yeah. my kids know who he is. Oh my God. And, and my son is like, that's Julian Bond. I talked to him when I was three. I don't oh. remember it, but it was awesome. That's amazing. Um, he liked my You know, peacoat. and like, <laughs> yeah, he liked my peacoat. He thought my peacoat was snazzy. Yes. Um, you know, and Making sure, yeah, I mean, we took them out to marches for George Floyd. We took them out yeah. to marches for Tamir Rice. Um, like, my daughter went to, we went to so many Kavanaugh marches that I remember putting my kids to bed a few weeks after he was confirmed. My daughter was overtired, and under her breath, she kept mumbling, like, stop Kavanaugh, <laughs> stop Kavanaugh. <laughs> and I was like, okay, maybe we went to one too many rallies at this point. Like she's like chanting in her if sleep. That's the tape um, in her in her head now. Yeah, yeah, that's the tape in her head now. You know, oh, um, and and you know, I, I've always it's although always it's still been true, we should still be chanting that. <laughs> we should still be chanting. Him. I mean, my son, my son calls him still Kevin Nope. He's like Kevin Nope. Um, but like. Because our kids are biracial disabled mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. it was really important, I think, for both my husband and I to make sure that they feel connected. Yeah. Like the world is not built for them. Right. And so what what can we do as as parents to give them a significantly widely, richly diverse chosen family? Yeah. Um, and also see, allow them to grow up with the sense of you are connected to all of these things. Yeah. 
Like, and you, and we are responsible for making the world a better space in all of these different ways. Like, whether it be, you know, on gender stuff, on racial justice stuff, on disability stuff, like you're, you know, um, there's that, there's that phrase from the Talmud that I've heard like repeatedly where it's like, you may not have been responsible for what was done, but you have a responsibility to help make it better. Yes. And I'm totally saying it off, but like, oh, great. I, yeah. I heard that. I heard that phrase at a friend's funeral and it just, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really feel like there is a, um, like raising our kids with that feeling of groundedness mm-hmm. um, is, is really important. You know, I'm struck by and really grateful for the ways in which you're, you're naming that, you know, your ancestors with disabilities. I, you know, in my research, I, one of my friends, did a great job of helping me build out a little more rigorous analysis around the intersections of racial capitalism and uh, ableism and how those things often rob us of ancestors. And some of the research I was doing was pointing to the ways in which people with disabilities get erased from our narratives. And you have to learn how to read the records and learn how to read the stories so that you and this is also true of queer ancestors this is also true of ancestors who were forced to pass there are all sorts of ancestors in my family i didn't find out about one of my family members because she married outside of her subcast and she was erased from the narrative Um, yeah and so and so i find myself um wondering i i imagine a lot of the folks you work with don't necessarily know uh, if they or what lineage of disability they emerge from, what the people before them were navigating. And you had mentioned something about movement ancestors. To me, that's, I don't want to oversimplify, but like movement ancestors, yeah. cultural ancestors, spiritual ancestors uh, offer a little bit of a remedy to that. Um, Absolutely. But, al- but also you know. learning how to read between the lines to discover. Uh, the people who had been erased, I think matters. Definitely. I mean, I remember um, we were watching a documentary. This has to do with the, the book that I'm writing. At some point I need to finish writing. Um, we were watching a documentary on Frank Sinatra on Showtime. And it was the Rat Pack's footage of the March on Washington because Whoa. they were all wealthy enough to have their own video cameras. Mm-hmm. So they videotaped their participation in the march. And it's like, there's Sammy Davis Jr., yep. there's Dean Martin, there's Peter Lawford, there's Frank yep. Sinatra. Yep. And when they got to the Lincoln Memorial, they were not seated with the press. They were seated in like the celebrity section. Yes. Um, and so you, their perspective of even the I Have a Dream speech yeah is visually different than we ever see because we all the press was on stage left yeah, and they were seated on stage right. right. And what we saw in that documentary is standing next to Dr. King as he's giving the address is an African-American little person. And we oh. never see him. Nope. Like I, none of us had ever seen him before. No. Um, and he, not only is he obscured from the press side by the podium, mm-hmm. But he is like at his head is at like King's elbow. Oh wow! And so typically, if you watch the footage, like it's it's like mm-hmm. elbows up. Yeah. Um, and so we saw this, and we were like, "Who is that? Like, who is that? Like, yeah. we have to find him." Yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, I went to all the all the historical books that I have on little people in the U.S. and, and globally and was like going page by page and yeah. being like, I want to find this person. And, you know, he ended up being his name was Kenny Brown and he was the first African-American member of Little People of America. He integrated LPA. Oh, my God. And so I was like, OK, I was like, so there he is there. So where did he come from? Yeah. Um, you know, and so, yeah. you know, doing that, doing that string and photos yes. and like the serial killer mapping in my head, <laughs> um, you know, and then we find like a 12 page spread on him in Ebony magazine, um, <gasps> in October time? 65. Oh my Yeah. Gosh. From October 65 talking about what life is like for African-American little people. Yes. Um, and I just have chills, you know, we. We've done, you know, I actually have a, I found a hard copy of the magazine on eBay. And so I ended up like buying a copy um, and have, you know, gone down the rabbit hole, hole and like tracked down folks that knew him. And turns out he was one of three African-American little people activists in SNCC and SCLC wow. um, coming out of coming out of South Carolina. Um, and his best friend was an activist with dwarfism who was best friends with congressman Clyburn. And so wow. like I've gone, like I've been building out like all of this, yeah. like tracking family members, doing these interviews, et cetera. Um, but what was really interesting is if you look at black media in that period of like 1960 mm-hmm. to like 1977 ish, mm-hmm. there is a lot of disability coverage. Wow. And, um, you know, the, the, there were a number of writers at Ebony and at Jet who were covering disability in different ways. Like, you know, the issue that I have of Ebony from October 65 has an article about the racism at the deaf games. Wow. And the racism that black deaf athletes face. And it wasn't yeah. like a bit, like, it wasn't like this is your very special disability right. issue of Ebony. It's it just, just a generic because what was happening. Wow. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there's articles on that. There's articles about um, um, a growing organization for families of women with sickle cell mm. and like what their advocacy agenda mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. And like every time, like, like as I was reading this, I was like, oh my God, this is completely amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and how do we, A, like, how do we lift up that, like, this is a case of like a forgetfulness, not erasure. Like this mm-hmm. existed, yeah. You know, across these multiple media outlets. Wow. And how do we push it out there mm-hmm. so that you know disabled people of color who are frankly looking for ancestors, yeah. who are searching for that connection, yeah, understand that they're there. That's amazing. Um, you know, and so it's it's funny. I was um. Uh, we hosted an event this last year for Sammy Schalk, for Dr. Sammy Schalk, who did the Black Disability Politics book, which is amazing. Yes. Um, and Sammy and I were talking about how, you know, the Ford Foundation, in conjunction with a couple of other foundations, we purchased the Jet and Ebony archives and wow. have endowed them because we were, our, our CEO was worried that they would be lost. Yes. Um, and so they were purchased and they're, they're housed at the Blacksonian. And mm-hmm. we ended up in it. We're having a much deeper conversation right now about what would it look like to go through and do an archival analysis of disability within black media yes. of, you know, 1960 through the late seventies. Um, how do we, how do we, and I don't want to say give back because mm-hmm. like it hasn't been taken. Like how mm-hmm. do we amplify mm-hmm. 
the voices of the generations past? Yep. And how do we make it accessible for today's folks? Because I think it is, um, it is, it is so incredibly important, Yeah. you know, for yeah. people to have that connection. And, you know, I think especially with long COVID too, it's going mm-hmm. to, and, and how disproportionately long COVID has impacted communities of color. I mean, yep. I think of, you know, I think about, um, I mean, you're talking about your family history. I mean, I think about the importance of the fact that we're seeing partition covered in media yes. this year. Yes. In ways that, I mean, you know, from from Doctor Who having a partition episode, mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting that the American audiences gravitated to the partition episode, where the British audiences gravitated to the Rosa Parks episode. Yep. Um, you know, and then and then obviously the phenomenal um, oh, Ms. Marvel Ms. Marvel, series, yeah. which I like. I have been a ride or die of Kamala Khan since yes. the second individual issue came out. I mean, yes. G. Willow Wilson walks on water to me. Yeah. Um, you know, but like understanding how important it is mm-hmm. to see that shown. I mean, we saw the same thing with Tulsa before that, watching yes. pop culture media pick up, you know, make Tulsa a thing yes. again. Yes. You know, and that, I, I mean, I remember having the conversation with John Lewis when, um, when Bayard Rustin sort of like reemerged yep. in the public discourse. And I remember being like, and he's like, oh, this happens every so often. He's like, I'm old enough that I remember this. <laughs> And he's like, in about five years, it'll, he's like, in about five to seven years, Rebecca, it'll be Fannie Lou. And I was like, do you have a calendar? Like, do you just predict? And he's like, no, he's like, he's like, there is a a hunger that comes up in in different, he's like, in watching, you know, the conversation around blackness and like black LGBT identity, he's like, he's like, blackness and women stuff will follow. Yep. Um, he's like, and so it'll either, he's like, it'll either be Fannie Lou, it might be, uh, it might be Diane Nash, we'll just uh-huh. sort of have to see, you know, and it was Fannie Lou. It was Fannie um, Lou. And, and, you know, and it's one of those things that when we hosted um, an event for Keisha Blaine's Fannie Lou Hamer book, I was like, man, I w- I'm like, I miss the congressman, I want him here. Yes. So I'd be like, you were right, you, were- you called it years ago. <laughs> um you know, and I heard him in my head be like, Rebecca, I told you it was Fannie yeah. Lou. Fannie Lou was coming next. Yes. Um, you know, but I think that we have, we have. And also Lorraine responsibility. Hansberry. Yeah. yeah. We have a responsibility to shine a light. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. To, to, to not hoard this and instead like push it out into the space and yeah. say like, this is out there for you. Yeah. Like, come and take it. Like, this is your birthright. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I recently started uh, dating, uh, well, it's been about a year, started dating a queer trans uh, person who, when he discovered all of the things that I didn't know about queer history and about the intersection of queer history and disability and fat activism, he's like, Oh, oh, I've got yeah. the entire archives of Fat Girl. There are so many ancestors that you are going to get gifted with, right? He was so excited to introduce me to them. It was really beautiful. It's really beautiful. That is such a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I mean, I went through something similar when it was like, you know, looking up like, like badass little people yes. from, you know, it's like, I was like, we get to lose the track. We yes. get Judy Lynn Delray, who was the founder of Delray Publications. There yeah. would not be sci-fi fantasy without her. Yes. Um, you know, and, and acknowledging and like, like saying their names yeah. and like calling that into the space is to me, 
um, such a blessing. Yeah, it absolutely is. So the last question I had wanted to ask uh, was, where are your connections with ancestors sparking joy? I feel like we've just done that. <laughs> so. all, the t- all the time, all the time, you know, um, all the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think um, to me, it sparks joy when I can share them. Yes. Like, you know, I, I was talking to somebody about, I was actually talking to somebody about the ADA mm-hmm. recently and they were talking about, um, you know, all the white men that are noted as the fathers of the ADA. And for me, it's always Congressman Major Owens, who was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, because his response was they gave the black man the hardest job. He had to get the business community and the other civil rights groups to buy in to support yep. the ADA because there was there was drama from the LGBT community because they wanted a, a you know, way, way, way early rudimentary version of the Equality Act to mm-hmm. go before the ADA. Mm-hmm. And there was a like, who should go first? Yep. And, and the con- the congressman was sent out to like, sort of like traffic cop it. Wow. Um, you know, and uh, he was notorious because the, the um, people with physical disabilities wanted to lessen the, pro- wanted like a leveling of protections. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted certain, pro- they wanted the most protections. Yeah. And lesser degrees of protections for people with learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. And the congressman, you know, pulled all the disability groups together and said, you know, over my dead body, will you institute a paper bag test on the ADA? Right. Um, and and wow. and talking to which nobody else should say, but yes. no, which nobody else should say. <laughs> and it is easily like probably one of my favorite things he ever said. Yes. But when the law got signed, when the law got signed, they had this big party at the White House, and every father of the ADA got a birthday cake wow. except for major Owens. Wow. And so when I started doing Hill work, I had heard the story from the wife of Justin Dart, who was considered like the, the advocacy father of the ADA. Yeah. Mrs. Yoshiko Dart told me the story and cause she invited me to go with her on July 26th to visit all the members of Congress that were instrumental in getting it passed. Yeah. And she had a every she gave red roses to everyone because they were her husband's favorite flowers. But for Major, she had a piece of cake. And I oh. said, you know, Mrs. Dart, why do you have a piece of cake? And she said, she said, you'll see. And we walked in and the congressman was like, Oh, Yoshiko, it's so lovely to see you. And she's like, Happy birthday. She oh. gave him the cake. And he says, Do you know why she gave me cake? And I was like, No, sir, I don't. He's like, Because when it passed, everybody got cake except for me. <laughs> um He's and like, that's nobody, not even a metaphor. He's like, he's like, nobody had any cake for me. Um, and so then every time I would go to the hill to see him, yeah. I would bring cake. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, as 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 an offering. And so I would always remind, you know, for me, like telling his story about the importance of the ADA is like, I mean, he was way more entertaining than any of the other congressional fathers, um, you know, and very much, you know, told it like it was mm-hmm. um, and had the hardest job yeah. of, of like the ADA would not have passed if not for Congressman Owens. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I'm like, how classic is it that even within the disability community, institutionalized racism yes. sat in and the black man did not get any cake. Yep. Um, you know, and so the, I ended up going to a play that his son was in, and I gave his son a piece of cake. And his son was like, what's this for? And I was like, it's for your dad. And he's like, my dad's been gone. And I was like, I know, but it's for yep. your dad. Exactly. Um, 
you know, and so the, the offerings, yes. I think to me, that's the other piece is like the offerings that we give up to our ancestors, yeah. um, you know, reminding them that they are valued, reminding yep. them that we miss them, that we still need them. Yep. Um, and that yeah. we're carrying on their work. Absolutely. Or in some instances, fixing their work. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca, thank you so, so much. If folks want to connect with you, if they want to follow what you're up to, what are the best ways for them to connect? The best way to track me down Mm -hmm. is honestly on Twitter Mm -hmm. until Twitter does whatever Twitter's going to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and my handle is just at Rebecca Coakley. That's perfect. That's perfect. We'll link to it in the show notes. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I needed to end my week on this note like this. This made my day. Thanks for listening. I hope you found inspiration in this episode for deepening your own connections with ancestors. This has been Shonda Ja. If you haven't had a chance to read my book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, you can find it at Chalice Media Group or by ordering from your favorite local bookstore. Thanks to Matt DiStefano for his fantastic editing skills and to Chalice Media Group for supporting the show. If you don't already have May 11th through 13th in your calendar for the virtual summit on ancestors and activism, what are you waiting for? You can find out more at shondajaw.com. Here's hoping that you find ways to be some of your ancestors' wildest dreams and that you find ways to repair the harm of other ancestors at the same time.